0: we don't sort of speak up if we've done something that we think is impressive because we get cut back down to size. And this sort of barrier in me had prevented me from from speaking about donating. And the painful realization was I'd just lost five or six years of potential impact because if I could just convince one other person that these ideas were good, I'd potentially double my own impact on the
1: world. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, Well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit? and the world we all inhabit together. Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in
0: 1984.
2: Welcome again to Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers, Today, I am very excited to be musing with Marcus Daniel. Marcus has been a world-ranked tennis player and an Olympic bronze medalist from New Zealand. He has five ATP titles, quarterfinal appearances at Wimbledon, and twice at the Australian Open. Marcus is the founder of High Impact Athletes that he formed to help commit athletes to high-impact philanthropy and to help spread the word about this type of giving. In 2021, Marcus personally took a pledge to donate a minimum of 10% of his annual income to high-impact charities for the rest of his life. Marcus has been awarded the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award for his work with high-impact athletes, joining recipients such as Nelson Mandela and Roger Federer. Marcus, it's great to have you on the podcast today and to muse with you about life, tennis, and many other things, including philanthropy over the next 30 or 40 minutes. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: For the audience, I, I just want them to know that Marcus and I are colleagues in many ways and friends, and so we've gotten to know each other over the years. I find him to be really interesting and motivational and uh, I guess I'm always envious. I wish I'd played tennis as well as Marcus did. As you heard in the introduction, Marcus is a Olympic bronze medalist, and uh, I don't get a chance to talk to too many of those on a personal level. So again, uh, that's a really nice fact. Well, Marcus, I've introduced you to the audience, but can you bring us closer to your own personal story, really from the beginning?
0: I grew up in rural New Zealand on a sheep and beef farm. Come from actually two different uh, lines of of farming families, and and so that was sort of my life growing up. And like, what I think, is that it,
2: like, can you people don't know what it's like on a sheep farm unless you are from New Zealand? So,
0: well, in New Zealand, the way farming is done for the most part is sort of what I what I imagine most people think of farming like. There is a lot of steep hill country, so it's sort of in the wilderness, and sheep are roaming around on on hills. We had a little over 3,000 acres on the family farm growing up. So first few years of my life were spent running around with different animals, with the dogs, with the sheep. Our farm manager had, had horses. So a lot of different animals, a lot of freedom. And I guess, luckily enough, the, the farmhouse there had this old concrete tennis court. So my mother and father used to jump on the tennis court in summer evenings after work. And I have an older brother and an older sister who wanted to join in with them so of course i wanted to join in with my siblings so basically from the age i could walk i had a tennis racket in my hand just dragging it around and apparently i i never uh, bothered with the kid size racket so i'd always want to grab an adult size racket which was at that stage bigger than me and and I I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't uh, take the smaller size. So yeah, from from a very young age, had a tennis racket in my hand, and like a lot of Kiwi kids, uh, there's really no specialization at a younger age. So you know, played tennis from a young age, but also rode motorbikes, um, played soccer actually to a pretty high level as a, as a teenager. Um, surf, snowboard, a lot of hiking with the family, and and had a really broad and and rounded childhood, and around the age of 15 actually got put into the position where I had to choose between tennis and soccer in terms of so that I was at a national level for both uh, on the national squad for both and the New Zealand Football Federation said that if I wanted to stay in the team I'd have to train with them year-round at at that point I was playing tennis as a summer sport and, and football as a winter sport so I chose tennis and at that stage went to boarding school in Auckland to try and do some more training you know as from a from a very rural place in New Zealand
2: was that a hard transition for you I for people who don't know Auckland's a pretty large city. Was that rough and were you homesick?
0: It was hard in a few ways. I definitely thought my school in my hometown was a lot more fun and had a lot more community feeling to it, although the boarding house itself in auckland had some of that same feeling. So, you know, you, you get to know a smaller group of guys who are all in the same situation as you. That part was fun, but yeah, I, if I could have stayed at home and got the training that I had in Auckland, I definitely would have done that. But you know, it's, it's just not a possibility in a, in a tiny town, especially in a place as small as New Zealand. You know, if you're a top athlete, you need to go to the biggest populations in order to get challenged. So that's what I did and and did a couple of years there. And then Felt like I'd sort of maxed out the challenge in Auckland at, at that stage and made what was in hindsight quite a strange decision uh, to move over to Slovakia at the age of 17 and do my final year of school by correspondence from over there. And that was at the behest of a Slovak coach that I was working with in New Zealand. So yeah, went, went over there by myself at 17 and, and really got thrown in the deep end of you know foreign place, foreign language. At that stage, that was I think 2007, felt very sort of post-communist, no one spoke English.
2: Was this in Bratislava, where we were, you, where were
0: Actually, no, at the start I was in a small mountain town called Banska Bastritza, and it wasn't much of an improvement on New Zealand in terms of challenge tennis-wise. So I grounded out for a few months there, but then moved to Bratislava to the capital city and, and started training at an academy and actually stayed there for about three years. That was my introduction to tennis. And then when I started playing professional events, actually, it was that year when I was 17 in, in Europe.
2: When you started playing professional events, what was going through your head about your future in terms of thinking about the world and where you fit in? Did you, did you think about it much? You'd just been in a country that had come out of the throes of a sort of Stalinist communism Um, It was still one country, right? It was Czechoslovakia at that point, or was it Slovakia?
0: It had split into Slovak and Czech Republics. Okay. So at that stage, you know, I'd been a very big fish in a very small pond in New Zealand, and I got a rude shock when I went over to Europe just to see how high the level was of people my age and, and how well they played tennis. I knew that I had a lot of work to do to get up to an international standard. The thing that Slovakia taught me was how to do that work. I'd thought that I knew what hard work was in, in New Zealand, and Auckland, doing, let's say, two to three hours of training a day. But then in Bratislava, I was doing sort of eight hours training a day. And it was brutal. It was too much, really. Uh, but because I'd had this rude shock of, oh, wow, I need to get much better as a tennis player, I threw myself at that and actually made quite rapid progress. I got my first international ranking that year and started moving up the ranks and I felt like things were going pretty well. After that shock of, uh, of yeah, seeing the level, I actually moved up quickly enough that I thought this is viable. But then from that point of thinking this is viable to getting to the point where I was actually making money from tennis, that was a good, I'd say, five, six years.
2: This is a tennis question, which some of our audience may be interested in, others maybe not so much, but you had said you had a cement court back at home in New Zealand, but I think of at least the Czech Republic and Lendl, I mean, I think of it as slow clay. Were you, where were you playing on? What surface were you playing on?
0: Yeah, it was clay, and uh, I hadn't touched a proper clay court until I'd gone over to Europe. You know, the first few years of playing on clay, I was like Bambi on ice. I mean, I'm a, I'm a tall, lanky guy. I don't have the lowest center of gravity or, or the strongest legs. So learning how to slide and stay balanced was very, very new to me. And I got embarrassed by many Europeans when trying to compete against them on clay for quite a few years. Uh, but if you want to compete as a professional, then you just have to be able to play on clay. Almost almost half of the year is on clay. Uh, it's the most popular surface in Europe and South America. So yeah, it took some time, uh, and it was very, very frustrating for a while. I remember actually early on, I think it was maybe 2008 or 2009, I had my first full clay court season on the Futures Tour, the sort of lowest level of, of professional tennis, and I lost 10 first rounds in a row and was very close to quitting. Uh, this
2: was all in singles. I, I This was assume. all in
0: singles. Um very very close to quitting i remember one time after losing a first round in the south of france just walking straight off the court to the car park and just crying for like 30 minutes you know just like what am i doing with my life why have i spent so many hours and years trying to make this a success and i'm just i'm nowhere close and then two things happened one was the next week i won my first clay court match the caveat being that I won the first set and the guy pulled out, but I'll, I'll take it anyway. It was the shot of confidence <laughs> that I needed. And then after that week, I said, said to myself, actually, okay, I'm going to give myself one more tour on hard courts. And if I don't do well there, then I think I've got to call it quits. I played three weeks in Israel and had my best results to date. So that was sort of the, yeah, the spurt of energy that I needed. Uh, but I came very, very close to quitting because of the clay courts pretty early on. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think there are a lot of people in the world of philanthropy that were are really glad you didn't. I don't know about the world of tennis. I can't really say one, of the, one way or the other, but it's certainly uh, your Kiwi doubles partner from the Olympics probably is glad you didn't quit. <laughs> Let me go back to the world. Um, as a 19-year-old super athlete, but probably not somebody that had spent a lot of time thinking about what was going on in the world or your place in the world, do you remember what your consciousness was like Back when you were say nineteen or twenty, relative to world events and your place in it.
0: To be honest, I don't think it was in my mind. Making a living from tennis was all-consuming. It was what I spent, you know, physically eight hours of my day on. But then it is an all-consuming pursuit because if you're not doing the physical training, then every hour of your time is planned out to to be adjacent to the physical training or to to add to the physical training. So. You know, you might get an hour and a half to two hours in the middle of the day for lunch, but you're not thinking, okay, that's my time to go and and read up on world events. You're thinking, okay, I need to get X amount of grams of protein in my body. And then X amount of time afterwards where I'm not moving to be ready for my afternoon training sessions. Same thing in the morning before training, same thing after training, everything is geared around trying to be a better tennis player. And that's something that I think isn't readily apparent from the outside, you know, People might see a few hours of training a day or during a tournament, maybe you only spend sort of four hours at the stadium, but it doesn't end there. Everything in your life is geared around becoming a better tennis player. So it wasn't until I got to the stage where I was actually making a living from tennis and felt some financial security around that and some job security around the, the idea, like the, the belief that I could continue to make a living from tennis That I felt that I had the mental and emotional space to start thinking, okay, what is my place in the world? Where are my privileges? And what should I do about it?
2: I'd love to use this as an excuse because at about the same age, you were focused on your tennis and getting better and better. I was an anti-war activist and very focused on what was going on in the world. And my tennis was way secondary. I also know I didn't have the talent so I wasn't being, I wasn't lured towards trying to improve my tennis career. By the way, for the audience, I used to be a pretty, uh, a sort of regionally ranked US tennis player, but really mediocre and not in the same league as, as Marcus, even when he was in his darker days of le- losing 10 uh, futures matches in a row, I couldn't even have carried his racket. But my point is, it was funny, our consciousness and our view of the world was very much reversed at at that stage. But you did start at some point to think about what was going on in the world and what your place, do you remember when that was and how that evolved?
0: Yeah, I do. I think the, the first time I started seriously thinking about this stuff was in my early 20s. I started a degree alongside tennis through Mass University in New Zealand. They, they offer sort of distance learning. I had always been interested in philosophy, so I took quite a few philosophy electives in that degree. When I was around 21, 22, in one of my uh, philosophy papers, I came across some ethical arguments by Peter Singer. The one that I remember most clearly was the ethical argument around vegetarianism. And I did pay attention. It did land for me, and I remember having a chat with my father when I was in my young 20s about these arguments that Peter was making around vegetarianism. You know, interesting conversation because my father comes from many generations of of farming families. I'd grown up in a household where, you know, that that way of life is a given that you don't really question it. Yeah, I do remember having those conversations when I was in my young 20s. But I also remember finding excuses or reasonings that were good enough for me at that stage to sort of put it to the side again. And then it wasn't until my mid-20s, I want to say, where, again, where I sort of had the financial security to open up my mind a little bit more, I think, something like that, that I started taking the arguments more seriously and started putting more energy into what can I do for the world.
2: Were you thinking primarily about non-human animals at that point, or were you thinking more globally about poverty or other things, do you think? Can you recall?
0: Early on, it was thinking about animals. And then in my mid-20s, when I first sort of discovered the ideas of giving effectively and and sort of the the philosophies of effective altruism, then actually the first causes that I got drawn to and the first causes that I donated to were human. And then it was over the, the course of the following couple of years that I actually started devoting more of my personal donations to animal welfare.
2: Let me contextualize this for the audience. How old are you now, Marcus, so that people can think about you know, where this journey was at that point?
0: 33 now.
2: 33. So this is starting maybe eight years before your, your current venture, which we'll get into high-impact athletes. Before we do get into high-impact athletes, now that you have the perspective that you have and your tennis career is by necessity taking a backseat because- of your injury. And so you're taking some time off and you transition to being a doubles player. I guess I should also say to the audience, Um, as you look at the world today, if you had to prioritize what the three most pressing problems in the world today are, not that this is your final answer that will hold you to forever, but what would be, by the way, Mark is one of the few guests that had no idea what I was going to ask him before we started today. But um, what would you think those three problems are. So
0: the the one that sticks out the most to me is factory farmed animal welfare. I think it's something that we'll look back on as humanity, hopefully in a few decades in the future, and think, "Why did we do this? This this was abhorrent." I think unnecessary suffering is is just abhorrent as an idea. Um, so that that's the thing that I emotionally feel most passionate about.
2: Quite different than the sheep that you were running after on the farm when you were growing up who were rollicking in the hills for the most part,
0: it really is and and I still don't feel completely clear in my own personal philosophy around where farming as a general concept sits for me. I can't imagine a world that doesn't have any animal husbandry in it as sort of an endpoint. I don't feel like that's attainable uh but factory farming is. A completely separate issue in my mind. Factory farming is sort of the commoditization of animals and I think that's just disgusting.
2: I have spoken with Peter about this very question when he visited my son's farm, which is primarily an organic vegetable farm. For the audience, my son is an organic vegetable farmer, but he has cattle on his farm and they slaughter about one a year for their own consumption and they use the rest for compost. And I did ask Peter about it And how he felt about it, because he spent a lot of time with Noah and me and uh, Diana on the farm. And I don't want Peter to be held to these answers that he gave, because he may have been being excessively polite. But I think he felt like yes, they do have some life that they wouldn't otherwise have good years if they weren't on Noah's farm. But he had he pointed to how they're slaughtered, whether other animals on the farm were aware that they'd been slaughtered, and so that the suffering is nothing in the magnitude of the kind of suffering that goes on with factory farm chickens. Um, but I got the feeling that it wasn't abhorrent to him that these animals were living that way on that farm, even though he himself, of course, would not eat them. But that, it was an interesting conversation about the ethics of all of that. And it's beyond the scope of our discussion here today to get into it. Um, but interested listeners can send Peter text messages or however you communicate with Peter uh, if you're not involved with his life. Um, and ask him about it. He's launching his revised book of um, animal liberation in late May. And so he's going to be very much focused on non-human animals, not just uh, the people fighting uh, extreme poverty like those of us at The Life You Can Save. So there are some interesting questions. So the first issue you mentioned was factory farming. What are the other two?
0: The second for me is... Again, it's the unnecessary suffering piece. And I think there's a huge amount of that on the human side. I think there is some really low hanging fruit in the human suffering space that doesn't get enough recognition or enough funding. The thing that jumps to my mind most quickly is malaria. I mean, if you think of where you're from, Charlie, or where I'm from, you know, the the States in New Zealand, when was the last time we had someone die of malaria? Probably many, many decades ago, but there are still many hundreds of thousands of people who die from malaria around the world every year. These sorts of problems, in my mind, can be solved with the right amount of attention and the right amount of funding. Your initial question was, what are the most pressing issues? Well, there are hundreds of thousands of people dying a year from this stuff, and many millions more that get sick and can't contribute to their families or to the local economies. The reverberations of these sorts of issues are huge, and they are pressing.
1: Today, we're inviting you to be part of something truly transformative, The Life You Can Save's Education Cause Fund. If you believe in the power of education and wanna make a lasting impact on children's lives, this is your chance. Hi, I'm Katie Stanford, head of research at The Life You Can Save. Your support means quality education for all, boosting life skills and opportunities. We're spotlighting girls' education, unleashing their potential and improving communities. With over 244 million kids worldwide out of school, your donation matters more than ever. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org and join the movement for a brighter future.
2: And I would add for the audience who may not know this, two things. One, the most vulnerable populations are the people who are most likely to die from malaria. That is, uh, children under five and women, uh, who are pregnant. And, uh, the Against Malaria Foundation, uh, which is a charity on our website, uh, is one you can look into or go to them. And also on the HIA website, the High Impact Athletes, I think, um, is another one. And then there's Malaria Consortium, which takes a different approach uh, to the whole thing. And they're also on our website. And then the third issue?
0: The third, I feel a little more unsure about because... The thing that pops into my head first is climate change. I don't feel like I know the science well enough to know how pressing that is and and how long we have to, to take action. I feel like perhaps the media has become more alarmist than they should around the timeline. I can't equivocate that. I don't know if that's the case or not. But, yeah, in, in terms of pressing problems, another thing that comes to my mind is, Actually, just this morning, I was reading about a a group of, I think, a thousand business leaders and thought leaders who had signed a letter asking to pause these large language model AIs just to sort of try to get a grip on safety. And again, this is an area where technically I'm very ignorant, but the worst case scenario risks of AI, I think, are huge. And if a six-month moratorium or, you know, a six-month period of Let's figure out what the risks are and see if we can mitigate them. If now is the time where we have the greatest chance of doing the best thing for for future AI, uh, then perhaps that's also super pressing.
2: So, you've tackled these problems, some of them anyway, in your own way. Um, And can you say, kind of, when you transition from focusing exclusively on your relationship with your wife and your friends and family and your tennis to Starting an organization which is attempting to use your position in the world to address these issues.
0: I started donating to these organizations, I believe, initially in 2015, and made a one percent pledge the following year. Sort of built that up over the years. Come 2020, I think I'd I'd made a commitment at the start of 2020 to donate a minimum of eight percent. Then COVID hit, and the tennis tour stopped. And for those that don't know, on the tennis tour, if you're not playing tennis, you're not earning money. We we earn money by showing up to tournaments and winning matches unless you're in the very, very top of the singles bracket and you get paid endorsement money, which, which I don't. So essentially, I lost my job. And for the first time in my adult life, I had months on end in one place with, with not that much to do. And it gave me a lot more space to think about my place in the world. And I guess at risk of sounding a bit grandiose, sort of the legacy that I wanted to to leave behind. And one thing I actually did during, during that time was I took Peter Singer's course on effective altruism through Coursera, an online learning platform. Very little of it was new to me because I'd done a lot of reading in the meantime. But what it did was sort of reinvigorate this question for me, which is what can I, Marcus, do to maximize my own impact in the world? And I had quite a painful realization, which was, okay, I'd I'd been maxing out the amount that I could give, or it felt like I was maxing out the amount that I could give, but I had not used my voice. We have this thing in New Zealand called tall tall poppy syndrome, which is the societal norm where we don't boast. We don't put ourselves out in front of other people. We don't sort of speak up if we've done something that we think is impressive because we get cut back down to size. And this sort of barrier in me had prevented me from, from speaking about donating. And the painful realization was I'd just lost five or six years of potential impact because if I could just convince one other person that these ideas were good, then I'd potentially double my own impact on the world. And so that was the sort of thought process that led to me thinking, how can I best use my voice? And I have a small platform. I've never paid much attention to social media sort of consciously avoided it during my playing career, but I knew some of the biggest names in the sporting world. So I thought, okay, if I can get bigger athletes on board with these ideas of giving effectively, then with their collective voice and that collective megaphone, we could maybe have a huge impact on the way people think about charity. If you can just get people to redirect their donations to a charity that's ten times or a hundred times more effective, then that's a huge amount of impact done in the world. So that was the concept that underlined high impact athletes. And and so I started noodling on that and speaking to a lot of people about it and yeah, launched the end of 2020. And it's been a very pleasant surprise to see how quickly it's grown.
2: By the way, High Impact Athletes uh, has a website and you can visit their website. And in many ways, it parallels the Life You Can Save website. In other ways, it doesn't because there's also a focus on some of the issues that Marcus alluded to, like non-human animals that we don't have at The Life You Can Save in spite of Peter Singer being my co-founder and certainly the inspiration for it. My wife is like the culture that you have in New Zealand. She doesn't like to talk about our giving, but she has come to realize that if she can say that by supporting The Life You Can Save itself as an organization and the growth of it, she's had more impact in the world dramatically than she did as 30 years as a compassionate family doctor. But it's taken a real long time for her to, to get to the point where she can talk about that.
0: I think a lot of people have that barrier inside them where they don't want to say, hey, look at me, I'm so good, or I'm such a great person. And I understand that. But then you've got to balance that against the potential impact that speaking about this stuff can have. If you can save a life or improve a 100 lives by speaking about this stuff, then who cares about a little bit of discomfort? Like, I'm sure if we, you know, it's it's like Peter Singer's pond example, we would take the discomfort of ruining a pair of shoes and getting dirty feet to save a kid who's drowning in a pond. And this is, in my mind, exactly the same thing. Yes, I, I still find it uncomfortable to speak about my own giving, but if it means that People's lives can be improved. Of course, I'm going to do it.
2: I ask myself, why am I more comfortable than you or Diana about speaking about my giving? And I think it's one of the ways I feel comfortable about it is at the same time I'm talking about the fact that I could do a lot more. That even though Diana and I have given away what most of our friends and family and others might believe is tremendous amount of our wealth, um, compare we still live well. We have two cars which is questionable anyway, and we have um, travel. Um, I just came back from Europe, half of which was work and half of which was pleasure. So I focus, yes, we've done these things and it's fabulous that we've had the opportunity to do them and to use our money to save lives and reduce suffering. But every time Diane and I go out to dinner or go on a holiday, I realize we're choosing to do something for ourselves that we could be doing more. So I think those two things for me compete And that's why I don't feel like I'm being so arrogant to talk about the giving, because in a way, it's almost embarrassing. And I think Peter feels this way a bit, too. It's almost embarrassing because we could do more.
0: One thing that I try to do, so I I hold people like Peter up as as heroes, uh, the likes of Toby Ord, you know, the the people who, beyond a certain amount, give everything. Uh, I'd like to get to that stage at some point in my life. So that trickles down to me, feeling comfortable to give more. And that's what I try to do with our athletes as well. So, you know, I I took the 10% pledge two, three years ago to donate a minimum of 10% of my earnings for the rest of my life. And that feels very doable for me now. I think one of the things that I was most surprised by is you don't miss the money that you don't have. It's simple to, if you're on a a reasonable income to live on 90% of what you you would otherwise have, have earned. But I'm the biggest pledger amongst our athletes. And I think having that example to set, you know, when I'm speaking to an athlete who's thinking about coming on board and saying, Hey, look, I started at 1%. I'm now at 10%. It feels great. I don't feel a negative impact on the quality of my life. It sort of nudges them up towards a higher anchor. And I think I feel more comfortable talking about that 10% because I know there are people like Peter and Toby out there Having those examples makes it easier for me,,
2: but I do want the audience to know that Marcus, in spite of his success as a doubles player, probably ranked i don 't know in the high mid 40s or whatever and winning a bronze medal at the Olympics, has not made a tremendous amount of money. So when you give ten percent of the kind of income that Marcus has, it's a lot more painful than giving fifty percent of the amount of money that Bill Gates has or the amount of money that uh, I used to make when I was president of a large retail company, so I think you can 't just look at the percentage I think it also looks at the amount of money you make and actually, the more money you make, the higher that percentage should be because you don 't feel it, and you can get to a point where as you as people can understand it who have a good feel for numbers that you get to a point where you 're giving eighty percent of it away and then begin to attack your wealth, which is more kind of a this point, how Diana and I see it is in terms of how much of our wealth are we giving away as opposed to our income? Because our income actually now is pretty low because we're we're not making any money. I volunteered at The Life You Can Save, Diana retired. But we can't just say, okay, we'll give away 20% of our income. We have to look at how much of that money that we're there. So I think it's really important for people to think through these issues. And then most importantly, as you pointed out, Marcus, and as you're trying to get your athletes to understand and, and talk about is where they give that money and its marginal impact. All right, we're, we've, we've been at this a while, um, at least worth one set of tennis, uh, even hardcore tennis, so I don't want to keep you too long, but where do you see HIA going? I know you and I have had to think about this together. You sent me a recent email about your vision for HIA. 10 years from now, I believe. But could you share that with the, with the audience?
0: Yeah, sure. I, ultimately, my hope is that high-impact athletes winds down and doesn't have to exist because giving back has just become such a social norm among professional athletes. I think that would be the biggest tick of job done that I could think about. Yeah, the, the vision that I have is, you know, a, a kid who watches their sporting idol their thoughts are: I would love to put, play sport like them and live a lifestyle like them. And part of that lifestyle is just giving back in a significant and effective way. You know, we're we're a little over two years deep in high impact athletes now. We have over one hundred and sixty world class athletes across around forty different sports, over thirty different countries. And I think this is the sort of thing that it's easy for it to snowball. Uh, you know, the the more athletes we have on board, the bigger athletes we have on board, the more credibility we have in the space and the more people who would want to join. And the cool thing is the community is really engaged, like talking to sort of digital marketing experts or social media people. They're astounded at the amount of engagement we get out of our athletes around this stuff. So to me, that says that the ideas are powerful and that they like being part of this community. So my, my vision for HIA is, is we grow into a huge community of athletes who are committed to using their platforms and their careers to do the most good that they can do in the world. And that ultimately these ideas aren't just ring fenced into the athlete space. Like we want to use the athlete megaphone to spread these ideas amongst sporting fans around the world. And I think the thing that I get excited about is sport is ubiquitous. I mean, across all strata of society, all around the world, people enjoy watching and following sport. And people enjoy watching and following athletes. So if we can use athletes as the megaphones, as the messaging platforms to spread good ideas and spread the ideas of giving effectively, uh, then I think we should. You know, at, at the moment, athletes are sort of used to sell shoes and, and make money for corporations. We'd like to, to use as, as a rough term, but we'd, we'd like to use athletes to, to do good in the world.
2: And the way they do good, just so the audience is clear, is by giving to the kinds of nonprofits that Marcus's uh, website will highlight for people. But something I'd like to highlight, because I think I'm much more comfortable doing this than Marcus is, is that it takes money to run an organization and to grow. And the amount of money that we're able to raise directly for high impact athletes or an organization like The Life You Can Save, but let's focus on high impact athletes right now the more that megaphone can get louder and the more you can amplify the impact of hia so that some of the most effective gifts will be gifts that are given directly to pay marcus's salary and other people on the staff as it grows so that and then ultimately uh the salary of people who know a lot about marketing and fundraising and research so as people contemplate and listen to marcus today i think it's really important that they Think about the fact that it'd be great if they could give to some of the charities that they recommend and we recommend, but helping these charities that promote these ideas might be the single best thing you can do. And I know Marcus, and I guess in some ways I'm speaking to the athletes out there that are listening to this that have the capacity to give as well as other people in the audience who might be listening. Think about supporting the organization, high-impact athletes as well, because that'll make it the most effective. So Marcus started by giving himself. Then he starts an organization like High Impact Athletes, which dramatically improves the giving that he could have done and is now giving through his work at HIA. But then imagine giving to HIA so that they can grow dramatically. So that's my pitch. I don't think Marcus will make that pitch. I mean, he and I have been going around and around about it now, I think, for a bit. But I have this opportunity to do it. So unless he tells me I have to take it out of here, um, it will be included in this discussion. Um,
0: I do appreciate your help. And I do think, I mean, one thing we can demonstrate up to this point is that any funding that's directed to high-impact athletes' operations actually becomes more than two times the amount of donations to the charities themselves. So we do act as a as a multiplier of donations. And, you know, at the moment it's a little over two to one in terms of a dollar in produces $2 to the charities, but we're aiming to to improve that multiplier manifold over the years
2: yeah based on what we've seen at the life you can save i think you can assume that it'll grow dramatically um up to a point and i don't know at what point that it mm. levels off but i'd like to end with the last question i've asked all of our guests marcus and um and then again uh thank you for what you've done so far and starting hia uh good luck with the your career but to me of course the most important part of your career that remains is the work you do with other athletes. To bring a spotlight on the suffering of non-human animals and human beings as well. But the last question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think it means to live a moral life?
0: For me, it means constant questioning of what you've assumed is right and wrong. I don't think anyone can reach a stage in their life where they say, I am living a 100% moral life. I think there's always room for improvement in the way that you think about things, and the way you approach things, and the way that you act, the way that you treat other people. I know I have a long way to go. But the thing that's most important in my mind is just constantly asking yourself a question, Am I acting morally right now? Or if you're contemplating a decision, what's the right thing to do? And I think that question is is usually a good guideline.
2: Well, Marcus Daniel, you may not have won Wimbledon yet, um, in doubles or singles, and you may not have won the World Cup. But I think you're a model for those athletes that have won the World Cup or won Wimbledon. And uh, I thank you very much for your work and thank you for being on the show.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. And and I just want to say thank you for all of your, your advice that you've provided me over the years. For the audience, Charlie has been a a source of wisdom. You know, When I was just getting started with high impact athletes and had no idea what I was doing, uh, he spent a lot of time on the phone with me providing expertise, providing wisdom, and and I hugely appreciate it. And I think part of HIA's success is is down to you and the time that you spent with me and the energy that you spent uh, helping me out. So I just want to say thanks a lot. And also thanks for all the work that you've done in your career. I mean, co-founding the life you can save has had a dramatic effect on the world in a positive way. So thank you.
2: Well, my tennis career may be over, but Marcus and I are
1: learning how to do this together. So thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and to Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about The Life You Can Save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.